Father, as we uh, gather together today, we know that we're connected to the greater body of your Son, Jesus Christ, that all over the planet there are people who make this day the day that they gather together to worship you. Father, I'm thankful for all those churches the world over that are invested in proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ, that they're out there to make disciples as you've encouraged us to do. Lord, this morning I want to pray for Grace Communion Church, Lord, and I'm thankful for the leadership that they have there, for the elders that have been raised up. I'm thankful that they proclaim the gospel. Lord, I would pray as they proclaim the gospel that you would allow them to edify and build up the people in their church, but also to reach the people in the neighborhoods around them. Lord, would you use them for your kingdom to accomplish your will and your work? Father, this morning I'm also thankful for those that we get to send out from our church. One of the very practical but important mission groups that we have is the action team led by Gabe and Alyssa Pock and a group of student leaders, Caleb and Rebecca and Julia. Lord, I'm thankful for not just the evangelistic things they do as they go out or the encouragement that they do as they go to other churches, uh, but probably most importantly to that ministry is the discipleship they do of young people, of taking these young kids, and they start by teaching them just some very basics, Lord, but uh, you've seen how they raise them up and bring these young kids into positions of leadership, and then some of those young leaders eventually end up leading the whole group. Father, I'm thankful for that. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to disciple people uh, to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, through that group. Lord, we pray also this morning for those who serve in our church. Uh, I think this morning of um, the uh, media ministry and Monica Mallon and the work that she's done there for years and making sure that we have uh, these CDs available that we can take with us and go and uh, getting that information uh, coordinated for us and the labels and all the kind of things that go along with that. Lord, I pray that that ministry would expand your kingdom, that it would expand the work of this church beyond the walls of this church. And then this morning, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for your word. I'm so honored that I get the opportunity to teach it here to these people who uh, love you, who've been willing to accept me as their pastor over the years. Uh, Lord, I would pray as we go into John today, as we go into 1 John in this chapter 3, uh, Lord, that it would be for us uh, encouraging, uh, that we would find in it a greater knowledge of our own faith, that we would find assurance of our salvation, that we would find confidence uh, to stand before you. Oh Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. We are in 1 John chapter 3, so if you'll turn your Bible there, that would be great. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us, but uh, I am still without slides this morning, so you're going to have to pay attention, I know. Uh, Unfortunately, though, um, I now have a computer set up, and I'll probably have to start making slides again next week. But the last two weeks of technology freedom have been freeing (laughs) and wonderful. (laughs) So uh, that being said, uh, I want to remind you as we approach this particular chapter, uh, really where the whole book is going. The book of 1 John was written so that you would know that you have eternal life, that you would know that. Uh, John, the gospel of John that we had done previous to this, which was so that you would believe, but now we're going to take that belief and we're going to build on it so you can have a knowledge of your eternal life. And so a powerful thing, I think, for many people Uh, Because I run across Christians all the time who struggle with their faith, that they have amazing faith in the moment when they get saved, but as their life goes on and things continue on in their life, uh, they start to see difficulties. They start to have troubles in their life. Uh, They start to uh, find going to church and studying the Bible to be, that's extra work. That's like one more thing to add to my already busy life. And through that process over time, sometimes through sin in their life, but ultimately what ends up happening is we begin to question ourselves as to whether or not we are saved at all. Uh, And then maybe once we question whether we're saved, we then start to question whether God is even real. And so we kind of go through this downward spiral. First John is designed to help put a stop to that downward spiral, to give us a new foothold, a new firm place to stand so that we can go forward. Uh, As we've looked at this book, I've divided it into three sections. 
Um, but that's really just for my brain because my brain works very linearly. And so for me, first and second chapters of this, God is light, sec- or third and fourth, God is love, and then the fifth chapter, God is life. Uh, unfortunately, John's mind is not like mine. John's mind is running in circles, chasing its tail. And so this book has repeated themes cycling all throughout it. And so you have to be kind of careful when you're trying to put a perfect outline on a book like this. Uh, I'm pretty sure when John sat down, he didn't think to himself, I need to make sure I write this letter to Christians in such a way that it'll be easy for Pastor Sean to preach in the future. That was not his concern at all. That's my concern. That's what I'm trying to do with it. Uh, Could you imagine if somebody were to take one of your personal letters and, and try to preach through it? like a letter that you wrote to somebody else and they tried to find your outline and what was your main idea? And, I, and you're thinking to yourself, when I write a letter, I got the opening pretty well down pat and the closing pretty well down pat and everything in between is just rambling, right? <laughs> like that's how I write anyway. Uh, but that's kind of how John is writing here. So we are going to see very repeated themes. Last Sunday in chapter two, uh, kind of the big idea in that is that uh, when we walk in light and righteousness, it demonstrates um, with us that we have a properly placed love and that as we abide in our confession of Jesus, we begin to know more about our salvation. We're going to see almost the exact same thing this morning. Uh, I'm going to word it a little bit different though, because in this section, we're going to find a different motivation for us. And that motivation is going to be God's love towards us and Jesus' example of love for us. And so we see in this now that God's love in verses 1 and 2 motivates us to practice righteousness in verses 3 through 10 and to love one another in verses 11 through 18, which will then give us assurance or confidence before God in verses 19 through 24. You see how that kind of flows together. At least that's the idea as we read to that, that God's love towards us motivates us to practicing righteousness and loving others. And when we see that in our life, that's what gives us assurance and confidence. When we begin to see ourselves practicing righteousness, uh, in particular, loving others. So as I read through this today, I've been trying to do this new thing. I've been trying to ask you to think about certain things as I'm reading through the passages. Uh, What I want you to think about today is uh, as I'm reading through the chapter, and I'll be reading it in chunks, but I want you to think about where you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and what their actions or their part of this is. Even though the focus is that we would know, what I also want you to be able to grasp is where you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I'll come back and pick those up at the end. I'm not going to focus on those too much throughout the sermon, but at the end we'll pick that theme back up so you can see how it all ties together in a nice little package with a bow on it. Because that's how every sermon works, right? Verse 1 of 1 John chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. That first concept, the motivating concept here, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. We're children of God. That's not just a term of endearment, by the way. way. That's a new relationship that we have with God. We're now the children of God. And so as much as we understand that Jesus is the Son of God, we've now been adopted into the family of God as His children. That's how much He loves us, that He adopted us. He brought us into His family. We are His children. And as you might recall from when you were a child, or maybe even as a parent, as you look at your own children, in those relationships... The child has a special relationship with the parent that nobody else can have. That's what we have now. We have a special access to God, our good Father. And it's kind of sad for me to think about it in these terms that some of you maybe grew up in difficult home lives. 
in difficult families. And so you didn't have the opportunity to see the picture of how much God loves you because within your parents, maybe they weren't great parents or whatever. And so it's kind of caused you to kind of struggle with those relationships going forward. What God was intending when he designed the family was that the family would be a picture of him to the world. It's one of the reasons important for us to remember that we stand for the family because God gave us the family as a picture of him and his relationship with us. And so we look at this and we recognize that it's a God who loves us so much, who made us, who called us his children. There's something kind of nice in that moment. I don't know if you remember these things, but I kind of remember those moments where we would be going through town, just doing our thing, running errands or whatever, and my, my father or my mother would see somebody that they knew, and they would introduce me to them. They would go, and this is our son. Wow. I'm their child. Like There's just this connection there in that relationship. Well, how much greater, though, is this, that when God sees you, He introduces you to others. This is my child. This, this, this is how great the love of God is, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And it plays in with this theme that's been kind of running through the book. Uh, John the Apostle, as he writes this particular book, uses that phrase all throughout, O children, O little children. And it almost sounds condescending until you recognize that he's saying, no, your children of God, no longer condescending, condescend, no longer a bad thing. <laughs> this is a good thing. You're a child of God, that He has called you His child. That then kind of motivates us in how we think. Uh, verse 2 is interesting, and it says, Beloved, that's us, those who are loved, those who be loved, right? You be loved, I be loved, we all be loved. Beloved, now we are children of God. That's who we are now. Here's where this little mystery comes in. Uh, we don't know much about how this all works out, but he, he gives us just this little hint of a mystery in verse 2. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Right now, we're children of God. But it's not quite clear what we will be. Parents, again, you understand this. We had children, and when they were little kids, we had no idea what they were going to be, right? We assumed they would grow up and be adults. <laughs> but they kind of turn out different sometimes than we anticipate. I know that was true with both of my kids. They were great kids, great children, but I was completely off in guessing who they would be. I was completely convinced that my daughter was going to be Miss Studious, and that was all that was going to consume her life, that she was going to be exactly like Sheila. I assumed my son was going to be exactly like me. Handsome, funny. <laughs> but there's this strange thing that happened along the way those things kind of crossed up. My daughter now became more like people, like she loves to be around people. She's a good student, always been a good student, but she was never like this, like, I'm going to be a student. She just was a responsible student. And my son now, I'm guessing he's going to grow up and be a comedian or, you know, something like that. And now he's looking into engineering. You just don't know how it's all going to turn out. Well, he's using that as a picture for us. You don't know exactly what your kids are going to be like. But you know now you're the children. And in the same sense, he's saying to us, you're the children of God. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like because we haven't seen the end yet. We have not fully understood what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. We have some glimpses through a mirror darkly, Right? Through a dark window, we have some glimpses into the future of what it will be like. But we are in some ways going to be like Jesus Christ in such a way that we can be in the very presence of God. That's what we're growing to. 
starting as children, but growing into people who can be into the presence of God. But all of this serves to be a motivator for us. Verse 3 begins the idea like this, everyone who has this hope, this hope of being like Jesus in some way, and it being able to be in the presence of God, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And this is where it ties back into chapter 2. Chapter 2 had those exact same themes, these, this idea of avoiding sin, of following the commandments of God, and even ended with the idea in verse 29 of practicing righteousness. But it also then described what it meant to avoid sin, to follow the commandments of God, to practice righteousness as loving your brother. And it all comes right back together uh, in this section here as he kind of circles back to that. But he lists now this new motivator in it. The love of God that gives us a hope of eternity is the thing that then causes us, everyone who has his hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has their hope fixed on God begins to make changes in their life. They begin to practice righteousness. You begin to see some fruit, some evidence of your faith in the way that you act. And he compares it to the other side, those who practice lawlessness. I love the word practice there. Uh, There are actually a handful, not very many, of some translations that just kind of skip that word altogether. And instead of just saying practices sin, like in verse 4, everyone who practices sin, it'll just say everyone who sins. But that's not the intent of the word there. Most of the, uh, the Bible translations have picked up on some way of pointing out that this idea of is, is practicing or ongoing. It's a repetitive nature. It becomes more of who you are. And it led to kind of some false teachings where there were those who came about who said, hey, if you ever sin again, you were never really saved. And every time you sin, you have to then reconfess Christ as Lord or else you won't be getting into heaven. And so you have to make sure all your sins are confessed at all times. So in case you accidentally die, you're not in a position of being separated from God because of your sin. It just led to some craziness in the church. But this translation here, this idea, everyone who practices, that's the difference. Are we practicing righteousness or are we practicing sin? Is there an ongoing pursuit of righteousness or an ongoing pursuit of sin? Which one becomes most evident as we look at your life going forward from the time you accepted Christ? For those who are believers in Jesus Christ, they will see a progressive sanctification happening. They will become more and more like Jesus Christ. In the same way as you spend time with anybody else, you become more and more like them. Well, if you spend time with God, you become more like God. You spend time in God's Word, you begin to speak like God. You begin to think like God. It's a reprogramming of your mind so that you can become more like Him. And there becomes now this evidence, this idea of there will be some fruit for those who are truly following after God, that they'll see some progression to their faith. Now, it is hard for us sometimes. Here's what happens to me sometimes. I'm not very good at looking at the big picture. And so I will in the moment see a failure and go, well, I'm not any better than when I first started. Instead of looking at the whole picture. 
That's the struggle. We have to look at the whole picture of our new life in Christ and recognize that there has been some sort of progress in righteousness. Now, I know most of you, before you got saved, were pretty much righteous anyway, right? That was sarcasm. (laughs) There's this progress that happens throughout your life. Again, that, that righteousness doesn't save you. That righteousness becomes a reminder for you. That desire to do the things that God wants you to do becomes a reminder to you that you're saved. It's an encouragement to you. And so for us, we come at this and we understand this concept of practicing sin versus practicing righteousness, that there is some effort on our part to become more like Jesus Christ. Again, not for the purpose of salvation, but because we were the recipients of salvation. In the book of James, it says this in James uh, chapter 2. Maybe I'll just read it to you. So turn to James chapter 2. If you get to the book of Hebrews, you went too far to the left. It's right after Hebrews. But James chapter 2 in verse 17 says, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Even so faith if it has no works, is dead being by itself. There should be some progressive nature there, some progressive change, change, this idea that we begin to confess our sins and walk away from our sins. Not that there was this instantaneous moment where we no longer sinned anymore, but we combat that progression into sinfulness by progressing ourselves instead in righteousness, that we begin to practice the things that God would ask us to do. It's important in verse 5 for us to understand that Jesus appeared for the very purpose to take away sins, and in verse 8, that He appeared for the purpose to destroy the works of the devil. That's what He was accomplishing on the cross, was to take away sins. But we don't want to lose the greater context of the book. Written to believers of various levels of Christian maturity, we have this reminder from Jesus, or from John, the author here, We have this reminder that when we sin, not if we sin, when we sin, we can confess those sins and be forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. There's no idea given here in this book that we somehow become perfect from here on out, but that we continue to work at this process, that we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. We compromise more and more of who He is, and we begin to act like Him. We become little Jesuses running throughout the planet. And as we start to recognize His character in us, His actions in us, we can stop and think to ourselves, now wait a second, if I'm becoming more like Jesus, that's a reminder for me that I'm saved. It's an encouragement to me to spur me on to even greater good works. And in the same respect, when we find ourselves involved in sinful things, it will be a reminder to us the guilt, the shame that leads to repentance is once again a reminder to us that we're saved. When you sin and you feel led to confess those sins and to repent of those sins, it's a reminder that you're saved. All of this is intended to encourage and to build up the listener, the reader of this particular book. So as it all flows together, he now then starts to describe for us a little bit what practicing righteousness looks like. And it shouldn't be a big surprise for us because it's the same thing he told us it looked like in chapter 2. Practicing righteousness just looks like loving one another. That's what it looks like. That's just simplifying it down to its key elements. To practice righteousness means to love one another. It means to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It means to care for one another, to to have empathy for the needs of others. Listen to how we continue this on. I'll just kind of reread some of these verses here in verses 9 and 10. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It's bringing us to this idea that practicing righteousness 
looks like loving your brother, which he's now going to lay out for us as a matter of example in verses 11 through 18. Here's the example that he's going to use. This is what I mean by this. He says, I want you to practice righteousness. Now let me show you a picture of what that looks like when you practice righteousness. Verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother... And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into light because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love with word or with tongue. Uh, Let us us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So two examples listed out here. One is a historical one from the Old Testament. The second is a rhetorical one for your life. It's just this is something you can do. Uh, In the Old Testament example, it draws back to Genesis chapter 4. I'll read it to you if you don't mind. Uh, it's It's the idea of Cain and Abel. I don't know why I asked you if you mind it or not. I'm going to read it either way. But the example of Cain and Abel in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 4 Uh, In verse 3, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offerings. But for Cain and his offerings, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Now, this is a confusing story for some people because they would look at it and say, wait a second, Cain brought an offering to God, Abel brought an offering to God. Why did God accept Cain's, or not accept Cain's offering, but instead he accepted Abel's offering? Of course, the big joke is, well, of course God's not going to accept Cain's because it was vegetables. Abel brought meat, right? Like that's a real offering. And in a sense, there might be a connection there because uh, it does remind us of the idea that Jesus or that God covered the sins of Adam and Eve by killing an animal to give them skins to wear to cover their nakedness. And so maybe in that sense, there might be some truth to that. But what it really reveals here, what it's really revealing to us right here is that Cain was a murderer at heart. He didn't really worship God, even though he brought an offering of sorts. The real deal was the evidence that he didn't worship God was that he killed his brother. That was the evidence. Of course, God knows this. And so the offering that's brought unrighteously isn't received by God. The offering that's brought with ulterior motives of falsely, not received by God. The other offering brought by Abel was received. It was obvious to God but it became obvious through the fruit of the life of Cain. Again, this example that if you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. In the Old Testament, played out here, if you're one who practices righteousness, it becomes more and more evident to you that you are, in fact, one of the children of God, that you're one of His children. So it gives kind of just this one little example here uh, to kind of lay that out for you. And then he contrasts it and says, hey, by the way, in this story, believers, you're able. Just like Cain hated his brother and killed him, the world's going to hate you because you're righteous. That was the motivation here. Verse 12, because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. In the same way, 
that the world who hates God hates you. It's the same way that Cain hated his brother Abel. It's those who do lawlessness versus those who live righteously. The connection, the encouragement for him, certainly to live righteously built on the motivation of God who loves us first, but also the evidence that that proves in our own life that we have some faith. Now, he's going to take it out of the Old Testament example and bring it into your personal life. How can we now see this loving your brother practiced out personally? Well, the first example is in verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The he here is Jesus. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So that's how we understand what love is. It's not what Cain did to lay down your brother's life for yourself, right? That's not love. That's self-love. But that's not love of your brother. Jesus sets the example of surrendering his life for others. And then he gives us a a very practical way that we can surrender our life to other people. Uh, It says this, For whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Little children, he draws us back to this imagery that we're the children of God, but it's just a very simple example. If you love others when you see them in need and you have the means to help them, you help them. That's the just clearest example of love. When you see somebody else who has a need and you have the ability to meet that need, you meet it. That's the simple example of what it means to love your brother. This is the reason that throughout history, churches have been the ones that have started all the anti-poverty campaigns. They're the ones that originally started the idea of hospitals. It all goes back to churches and Christians because they have this love for humanity. They begin to act on that love for humanity. It begins to bleed out into more organized efforts to care for other people. It's why we have a food pantry. It's why we have a a, a line item in our budget for benevolence in the tens of thousands of dollars that we just give away because we have the ability and we have so many people with need. Now, we can't possibly meet every need, But we have within our budget, our church budget, room to help a certain number of people. It's an example of love. Anyone who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? I found a good test for this is to drive down to Denver. Spend some time downtown in Denver. And as you go downtown, you see a whole different version of homelessness than you see in Cheyenne. And I'm telling you, it's just blocks away from the richest part of Denver. 16th Street Mall and all that kind of stuff. It's like right there, all the money in the world, and right next door to it, all the homelessness you could ever imagine. Saw the same thing when we were in uh, California. And we we're like, we're going to go see the beach and this is going to be amazing. And as we're pulling up to the beach, it's full of tents, full of homeless people. Now, look, I get it. If I'm homeless, I'm going to live in California. It's warmer than it is in Cheyenne, right? That makes total sense. But here's the test. If you look at the homeless people and you have hatred for them in your heart, that's an issue. Now, you can't meet every one of their needs. You just can't do it. It's just not physically possible for you to meet every one of their needs. But what is behind your view of them? On the other hand, if you look at them and you have a a love or a compassion, that's going to help define for us that we love others. And in the context of this passage, it's actually really focusing it in mostly on believers, oddly enough. Now, now Jesus taught that it was to love your neighbor, and he even makes a big point about your neighbor doesn't even have to be Jewish. He goes in, he uses the Samaritan as the example, right? He, He goes over this over and over. But here, John is talking specifically within believers, in particular within the church world. We should have a desire and a care for the other believers around us. And sometimes I've run across people who tell me they're believers, 
But when I explain to them that somebody's struggling in their life, they come up with answers like, well, it's probably just something dumb they did. They deserve this. They're in a bad shape because they make bad choices. And sometimes that's true, but their motivation is not the heart of the issue. Yours is. Yes, sometimes people are in, many times, people are in a bad position because they made bad choices. But that has nothing to do with you. Whether you help them has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with how God helped you who made a lot of bad choices and loved you in the midst of those bad choices. And now you're going to love people in the same way that He loved you. And again, to make it as stark and clear as possible, the example is Jesus. I deserve to die because of my sin, because of my bad choices. Jesus died for me to show me what real love looks like. Surrendering a piece of yourself to help others. I do always want to clarify this. You can't help everyone. You just can't. But you can help someone. You can help in some way. Big things, little things, you know what you can do, but you can help someone in some way. We've had this habit, uh, my wife is way better at it than I am at this point. Um, I don't uh, do this anymore. (laughs) But we keep these little bags in our car and just little stuff in there, just little things, socks. Homeless people love socks, right? There's just socks in there. There's a Bible usually in there. Uh, Different times we put calling cards and hand sanitizer and sometimes we've put just different types of little food items in there and gum, just little things. But it's like in the moment when I'm driving down the street, I can't solve all of your problems. I can't get you a house right now. But I can get you socks. I can do something. And it allows me to recognize as I'm looking at this person in need in the moment, I'm not going to turn a blind eye to them. I'm going to do something. It allows me to exercise the love that's there to practice the righteousness that I learned from my Savior, Jesus Christ. To make it more clear, I'm going to have you turn right back to James. Remember we were in James chapter 2? I'm probably giving away the end here because in January I'm going to be teaching through the book of James. And you'll be like, oh, that's old hat. We heard that in 1 John. But James chapter 2, you remember we read in verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Well, look at the two examples. Are, are the example there in verses 15 and 16, the two verses before it. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is it? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. The children of God begin to become evident because they practice righteousness. And a very simple form of righteousness is to love others. The simple, clear understanding here. Those who are loved by God, the children of God, will practice righteousness. Most clearly demonstrated as we love other people. Verse 19, we're back in 1 John 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, we're going to wrap it up here with this section. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So, 
Verse 19 is why I keep saying all of this is a reminder that this is how we know, how we can have assurance, how we can have a confidence as I was going through this. It doesn't say that in the first 18 verses, but verse 19 tells us that's the point. We all know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before Him. Well, what is the this? It's that love, that practicing righteousness that is clearly seen as we love others. That gives us an assurance in our hearts that we're of the truth. But when you mention the heart, you have to be careful because our heart plays tricks on us. He's not telling us that it's our feelings that help us know that we're saved. I just... I feel saved. Oh, can you feel the saving in the room right now? I just feel saved. He's not telling us that we feel saved. He's saying that we can have assurance of our salvation if we find ourselves practicing in these things. And we have to be careful. It's actually uh, somewhat of an unfortunate uh, thing, verses 19 and 20, it's one thought, but because they put a verse number there, it kind of breaks it up in our mind. And even as I read it, I find myself putting a comma there that's not in my Bible. So in verse 19, it says, and will assure our hearts before him. And then I pause because it's the end of the verse. And then I read the next thing like it's something completely different in whatever our heart condemns us. <gasps> no, what it's saying here is, will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. It's not two separate thoughts. It's one thought brought together. It's that even though we might feel as if we're unsaved, if we're not the children, we might have the feeling that we're not the children of God, we can have a knowledge that we are that contradicts that feeling because we recognize that we're practicing righteousness by loving others. When we recognize ourselves practicing righteousness by loving others, that action, that activity trumps our feelings of condemnation that rest in our heart. And remember, we've talked about this, that some people struggle with their faith. They have this initial moment, this great moment, man, I believe. I believe I'm going to follow Jesus. But then over time, slowly, over time, that strong moment just kind of wanes in their life. And then they just have to get about the day in, day out grind of living in this world as a Christian. And after a while, your heart starts to say, remember how amazing it felt the day you got saved? How excited you were? There's no excitement in your life anymore. You don't seem to be excited about Jesus at all anymore. You're just, just going through the motions of loving people. You're just going through the motions of not sinning. And your heart just tells you, you're probably faking it. What this says here is, don't listen to your heart, it's a liar. But my whole life, everybody told me to follow my heart. Your heart has no idea where you're going. It has no idea where it's going. It's just a muscle, right? It has no eyes. It can't see. It has no ears. It can't hear. We treat our hearts like an idol sometimes. Don't follow your heart. Your heart's an idiot. Follow Jesus. Follow Him. Follow His example. Follow God. And as you find yourself following Him following in his footsteps, walking the way he walked, and your heart says, you're probably not even a believer, you can say to your heart, heart, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. Because all the evidence says, I'm a child of God. Because I'm becoming more like him and less like you. I'm growing in my faith. I'm loving other people. I remember actually being caught off guard by love early on in my faith. I remember just one day just seeing somebody in a bad situation just going, oh my goodness, I can't believe they have to go through this. And everyone around me is mocking this other person. 
And I always remember this story because it's the very first time that it really just became crystal clear to me. I've told it here before, I'm going to tell it again. I'm working at a grocery store. One of the gals that was working there uh, was pregnant, didn't have a lot of money. She had taken some time off so that she could have the baby. She came in to go grocery shopping and she's wearing jeans that are unbuttoned because she couldn't afford maternity pants and a bikini top because she didn't have any shirts that went over her. And everybody is making fun of her. Well, that's the most white trash thing I've ever seen. And inside, I'm like, oh my goodness. How have I not seen this person before? How have I not cared about them before? And it was just like this light went on. And it was like the Spirit of God said, because you weren't a believer before. <laughs> like, this is new for you, Sean. It's a change that happens in your life. This newfound compassion and love for other people was, it was, in my case, it was a stark reality. It was so very clear in the moment when I recognized it, when I began loving people who I didn't love before. It was a big deal for me. It was a marker in my life. You're a child of God now. Doesn't make me perfect. Still have my bad moments. But there's some assurance that comes with this when my actions overcome the feelings or the emotions of my heart. It gives us confidence. It gives us confidence that we can walk up to God and ask anything we want of Him. Just like a little kid. I don't know how many times I've seen this in a grocery store. A little kid asked their parent 14 times for the same candy bar at the checkout stand. It's just confidence there. Now, part of it's a learned confidence. I think I can wear them down, right? But kids just know, if I want stuff, I get stuff from mom and dad. And I can just ask them, and ask them, and ask them. And kids will ask for all kinds of crazy things. 18-year-old kid, mom, I want a car. What? You know what a car costs? 8-year-old kid, dad, I want a jet ski. My friend, I was at my friend's house and he had a jet ski. What's a jet ski? I don't really know. It was just sitting on a trailer, but it looked cool, Dad. Just this confidence that you can approach your father with anything. This confidence when you're the beloved child that you can approach your parents with anything. Well, as the beloved children of God, there's this newfound confidence. You can approach him because you know that you're one of his children can ask him anything. Verse 23, kind of a summary statement. This is his commandment. that We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. So if I keep his commandments, that's God, that means I'm abiding, I'm remaining in him. But the beautiful part of this is, and He, God, in Him, me. So as I abide in Him by keeping the commandments, as I keep His commandments, it's evidence that I'm remaining or abiding in God. But I'm not by myself in that. God Himself is abiding in me. And it clarifies for us, that that is God the Holy Spirit. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And I know we say these things sometimes, it's kind of a Christian cliche, but understand this, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit who is God lives in you. The Holy Spirit, who is God, lives in you. Now, in chapter 4, he's going to expand on that a little bit and help you recognize when you begin to see the Spirit of God working in your life, that also helps you know that you're a child of God. But in this case, it's just making this connection here. When you follow his commandments, which he defines here as believing in the name of his Son and loving one another, the same thing he did in chapter 2, as we do those things, 
It's evidence that we're abiding in God, but that He's abiding in us. Now, I asked you to kind of pay attention to what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit does, because we spent a lot of time talking about us practicing righteousness and loving others. We spent a lot of time on what we do, but as we divide this chapter up and look at it from the God perspective, in God the Father, in verse 1, it says, He loved us and called us children. In verse 2, again, it says, we are the children of God. That's who we are now. In verse 9, speaking of God the Father, we are those who were born of God, which means sin is foreign to us now. And then in verse 22, it says that we can receive from God. That's the action of God the Father. God the Son, in verse 2, number one, He's going to appear to us, but also we will then become like Him. In verse 5, it says that He appeared, God the Son appeared to take away sins. He appeared in verse 8 to destroy the works of the devil. And then in verse 16, God the Son taught us what love is by laying down His own life. And then here at the end of the chapter, in verse 24, it's God the Holy Spirit who abides in us. I love the picture over and over throughout Scripture. As we abide in Him, He abides in us. It says in Scripture to not give up, to hang on, right? Persevere. But it also tells us in Scripture that He won't let us slip out of His hand. It tells us in Scripture to avoid sin, but it also tells us in Scripture that God won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. It's that two-part relationship that we have with God, Him always working on our behalf, us always working because of what He's done on our behalf. And those two things working together accomplish for us an assurance of our salvation. Whereas we said it in John chapter 15, we can have full assurance of our salvation as we abide in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for us today is that each one of us would either know a little bit more, have a greater confidence, or just a a good reminder of the fact that we're children of God. Lord, I would pray as well that that fact that we're children of God, the fact that we have been loved by you, that that would spur us on to love other people and to avoid the things that you dislike. Father, would you encourage us today and spur us on to new things in you? Father, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with something.